Hello, welcome back to Learner from a Layman. I am Carl Christensen, back with Cameron Christensen, who I think has been, you know, you've been spotty recently, Cameron. I'm docking it from your absolutely massive paycheck that I've been sending. Okay. I will try to supplement it with that salary that I have. From a real job? From a real job. Where I've been working, you know, like 60-hour weeks. Oh, boy. Well, um, yeah, I, I can't say that the... Uh, the thing about salary is you don't get paid. It's true. You don't get paid extra for uh, when you are on salary. So, But you are also on salary here. It's just a hypothetical salary. You know, hypothetically, someday you could get a salary. Um, all right, so today, the subject of the podcast is going to be the science of language, or the basics of, of language. So, um, there's a bunch of different ways we could start approaching language. Um, I think, first of all, it's important to understand that often people view language as more of an art than a science. Uh, it's only in the last, let's say, 100 years that people have really started approaching language more scientifically as a point of uh, being able to break it down. Now, I say that in the last 100 years. I mean, for thousands of years, you know, scholars and philosophers have, have taken scientific have had scientific takes on language, uh, but only certain aspects of language and, and not uh, kind of a universal understanding of all the different parts of language and how they can be scientifically studied. Uh, and so in the last 100, maybe 200 years, uh, the, the formalization of the, the study of linguistics as its own separate branch of, uh, of science, though uh, Recent, it's uh, even now most colleges kind of lump it under the uh, the arts. Um, so, for example, I got my degree in, in linguistics, uh, which well, I got a bachelor of arts. Yeah, even though the study of linguistics is supposed to be a scientific study, um, you know, uh, where we are trying to formalize the uh, these laws and, and rules and, and, and study, you know, language more scientifically as opposed to, um, you know, writing a novel about it or whatever else. So, um, but yeah, let's, let's start with language. Something that I think Cameron, you have some experience with is the history of language. We've spoken in previous podcasts, the Spanish podcast, specifically a couple of weeks ago about, um, you know, the history of the Spanish language. Now this history of language in, uh, in general, is a little bit more um, not completely understood, right? The, we understand that uh, you know thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, humans you know started using. Well, I guess tens of thousands of years ago, humans started being able to use um, drawings, and some some priv- primitive languages were being developed. Um, we know that animals, to some extent, can communicate using language. Uh, and so language history is, is kind of a bit broad, a bit uh, difficult to ca- uh, encapsul- uh, encapsulate and discuss as a specific thing. Um, but one thing about the history of language, as, as you, it is um, something that we discuss in linguistics, uh, is that we're also studying the, how languages change and how languages use specific sounds or ideas and how those things have become have changed and, and um, 
morphed over the time uh, over time as languages have become um, you know uh, written languages as opposed to just a purely spoken language um, and once again that's something we discussed in a previous podcast as far as pidgin languages going to creole languages um, but the history of language is uh, a its own branch of, of linguistics and one thing i know that the layman is interested in is etymology often cameron do you know what etymology is yeah, it's those delicious beans that you get at Japanese restaurants. That's that's correct. Most people don't know those. Have to know, Cameron. <laughs> no, etymology <laughs> is the origin of things. So right, origin of words. Right, exactly. So when you and this happens a lot, right? Like people wondering to themselves, like, where did that word come from? You know, it sound is that French or? Um, so the etymology of a language. Uh, oh, sorry, of a word is is uh, something that you can uh, find um, and has been documented uh, in um, for for hundreds of years now for trying to trace the beginnings of a word and uh, find out why it you know how it got into a language what it was originally intended for um, and so etymology is very an interesting subject to the layman. It's something to be familiar with and uh, a term to be familiar with because when you're asking for the history of a word, that's what you're asking for. You're asking for the etymology. Uh, I think that's something that... Watch my big fat Greek wedding and listen to Gus, how he tells everyone everything just comes from Greek. <laughs> exactly. That's uh, what we call a folk etymology. <laughs> when you uh, make up an etymology of the word... Um, and, uh, the, those are not, um, le legitimate, obviously, but they are, uh, culturally relevant. So something that we do a lot is we try to come up with what we think the etymology of a word is, because sometimes it turns out the etymology of a word is hard to, uh, track down like the okay, for example, which is kind of ubiquitous across all, not all languages, but pretty much these days that you can say, okay, even in like Chinese, um, so where did OK come from? Well, it turns out we don't have a great etymology for OK. It kind of showed up, and there's a couple of theories as to how it showed up. But sometimes tracking words to their origin is tricky. So, um, but yeah, etymology is a very interesting part of linguistics and something that uh, people obviously still uh put online uh, there are etymology dictionaries and, and those types of things uh, available online for you to, to look up and, and read about the history of a word all right so history of language like i said a bit or the same uh, like you know sayings like sentences like oh sure like yeah i don't know i can't Idi think of one like idioms you're talking <laughs> idioms right like, yeah uh, idioms like idioms yes people like yeah. to know the etymology of idioms too like I don't know. I can't think of an idiom right now, but that sure. could be... Kick the bucket, for example. Yeah, kick the bucket. Meaning to die. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, the, yeah, same, people like, yeah, exactly, people like to know what the source is of those things, and those related to linguistics. Um, it's a linguistic study to, to track those things down and figure out how they started and what the, what the process is by which words are added into a language and also idioms. So, um, but yeah, history of language is, is a bit 
broad. We're not going to like I didn't address it much other than to say that it's uh, been around for tens of thousands. Language has been around tens of thousands of years. We study it in all its aspects. The change of language across the, the millennia uh, is something that linguists are, are interested in. And etymology is something that I believe that a layman is more familiar with and more interested in than, you know, proto languages that we don't actually speak anymore. Um, all right. Let's move on to a, a few of the hard science aspects of language. Um, and our, the first one is one that I think we've uh, all, well, we've all had direct experience with, and that would be like phonetics. Um, so phonetics, Cameron, what are phonetics? Um, I'm pretty sure that it is combinations of letters that produce certain sounds. So it's yeah. easier to say a word. But there is a nice comedian that has that work that Brian Regan makes a funny joke about phonetics that um, phonics worked good for me. Uh, right. So in, especially in English, though it's a true in, in a number of other languages, um, the orthography of the language is often you know, especially in people that don't study linguistics, that, that's married with the idea of phonetics. So orthography and phonetics are not the same thing. And, and we realize that, right? Like Cameron was just saying, comedians make jokes about it. Everyone's experienced it when you're trying to le learn to read English. It's an abysmal experience um, because it turns out <laughs> that the, uh, the experience of trying to learn to read English is complicated by the fact that uh, English has very flexible orthography. When we borrow words in and the history of language, uh, our language as it's changed has um, made it so that N-I-G-H-T does not say nigit or whatever. It says night. Um, right. <laughs> there's, there's lots of what we call silent letters and um, those types of things. And that's all more about the uh, orthography or the, the written language. And, and that's um, related to phonetics to some degree. But, but generally, when, we, when a linguist is talking about phonetics, they're actually literally just talking about the sounds that we produce with our mouth. Or um, well, actually, yes, linguistically, that's what we uh, mouth or nose. Um, and you're in some. 60 sounds in the English language? Uh, well, so there are a certain number, and this, I believe, also has come up on a podcast in the past. We've talked about the IPA before, um, and that's International Phonetic Alphabet. So there's a certain number of sounds, and they've been categorized and and organized, and, and you can look all that up, and it's interesting. But phonetics um, it goes beyond just that. It also studies the, the sound waves we, uh, that we create, how we... Um, differentiate between different, um, you know, sounds uh, because it turns out those are based on uh, the language that we speak. So if I speak Spanish, uh, I'm going to have, or, or let me for Ch Chinese or, or Japanese or some one of those languages, um, they don't differentiate generally between an R and an L very much. Um, and you hear that when they learn those speaker, native speakers of Chinese or Japanese learn English because it's hard for them to differentiate in their new in their second language. Um, so in a, in a native language, we learn the rules 
subconsciously of like the of the um, what we call minimal pairs, which are this word is different um, than this word because of this one single sound. Uh, and the single sound, now we know that that sound makes a difference in our language. That, differ that difference is important, linguistically significant in our language and helps us differentiate between words where some sound differences don't um, differentiate uh, between words in a, in a specific language. Uh, for example, butter and butter, uh, most people in English don't have any problem with either, even though I made two different sounds in the middle of that word, right? Butter, that's a flap in the middle, butter and butter with an actual T, an aspirated T. So the, the phonemes, and, and that's phonetics versus phonology, um, the understanding of how uh, phonetics, the actual sounds that we produced, uh, map into a specific language, that's phonetics and, and phonology, that's where those uh, two fields meet. Phonology is the study of phonetics in a, generally in a specific language or how, how they are used, phone, uh, how phonemes or how these sounds are made are, are used in a, in a language and uh, phonetics is more scientifically what they sound like, what they look like, what they look like as far as their sound waves and, and uh, phonology is more concerned with how are they used in language, what, uh, what is uh, a uh, what differentiates between different uh, meaningful sounds in that language? I mean, kind of going back to the, the, these phonograms, like there's a good e example of what you were using, like Paula Dean says butter. Uh, uh, sure. You want some on those mashed potatoes or whatever. She put butter and everything versus mm. other people, like you said, would say butter. Or if you're from, like, the Mountain West, you would probably say mountain and not mountain. Yeah, glottal stop, sure. Yeah, so, I mean, yep. is it, are some of those phonograms that you're talking about are regional? Right, so, uh, yeah, th th it becomes all a little complicated. You get down into the weeds um, because some of these are... They are meaningful differences in some scenarios where linguists, as you study it more, as you be it becomes a science, you get to the point where you can tell, okay, a nasalized uh, vowel in English is no difference than a, nasali a non-nasalized vowel, right? There's literally no difference. We can't even tell the difference where th these other things, and so maybe my example actually wasn't great because we can tell the difference. You can hear it. Like if you ask someone, and, and native English speakers have these discussions among themselves, like, oh, why do you say butter, butter, whatever, uh, versus butter? Um, as soon as you can hear that difference, uh, it doesn't mean that it's all of a sudden become a separate phoneme, that, that all of a sudden it can be used to differentiate words, but it means it has the possibility that it either is being used that way or could be used that way, where there are certain sounds, differences in sounds, where in English, we just don't even hear it, and you can't. As a native language a speaker of one language, unless you speak another language that does have that difference, you're not going to hear the difference between a nasalized vowel and an unnasalized vowel, and it's certainly not going to be the, enough for you to, uh, to uh, kind of internalize it and be like, oh, that sounds like a completely different word. That's not something you'd ever have a thought of. And that's kind of more what uh, phonemes are, or the idea that native language speakers just can't even... You can't conceptualize how that sound is different than this other sound because to you, they sound the same because that's all you've ever heard. 
you've never differentiated. You haven't really developed that neural recognition of the these yeah. uh, wa- sound waves coming in to the point where you can say, oh, that's actually different. That makes sense. I mean, so you speak a few different languages, yeah. correct? Uh, a bit, so, yes. <laughs> yes. So would you say that you could pick up the differences in your non-native language, or would you now recognize differences in your native language of English? You hear them a little bit more. You become a little bit more aware of them. Long vowels, short vowels, um, guttural sounds versus, uh, you know, um, so it's something that is velar, so like a k k k versus a k k k. In English, that sounds funny, and you can tell the difference, but you wouldn't ever really think about it much because we don't have a true guttural phoneme in English. There's no k sound that means anything. So it's not something that we really internalize as a language. That's what that means. The what? That means you're about to hawk a loogie. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, anyway, but yes, it is uh, it is something that as you learn other languages, and especially languages that are more divergent, uh, bigger changes. So as I learned Chinese that I've been studying for a while, you, you hear some very different sounds um, than you're used to and, and the, the way that they differentiate uh, versus English. You know, it, it starts giving you a fuller picture of, of how that works. But um, let's move on from phonetics. Interesting for sure, but there are some things I think that the layman are more interested in as we move along here. So the next one, and this one uh, is called uh, is phono- uh, sorry morphology or morphemes, and uh, this is the idea that there are specific sets of sounds that go together and that are used in a a, a group to and, and they're like the base unit of meaning in a language. The morphemes have a meaning, but but they're general, so there's independent morphemes, so morphemes that can stand alone. That's like any word that you can think of. And there's like dependent morphemes, and those are any grammatical function that you can think of. So the ing, I-N-G in English. Uh, you can't just say ing. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but you can add ing to almost, I mean, just such a large number of English words that it's a very what we call a very productive morpheme. It is a dependent morpheme, but it can be added to lots of different words to sing, singing, run, running, right? Gerunds, all these. Uh, morphine, morphine, or morphine? Because it's morphine. morphine. Not the. Not the drug. Not, not change of something. Oh, right. Like morphine, M O R P H E M E, morphine. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's a. And so morphemes are the base unit of meaning, and there are lots of different morphemes, and so linguistic study those in order to understand the rules behind them. So there are certain things, morphemes, units of meaning that um, get used in specific scenarios and can't be used in specific scenarios. So you can't say... um, So you say unintelligible, not imintelligible. Um, that makes sense because you're duplicating it the in, intelligible. If you said inintelligible, that sounds weird, right? Even though un and in kind of have the same meaning. And anyway, that's like I said, all of these uh, examples might be a bit flawed. I don't teach linguistics. Uh, I just studied it. Intelligible, like, um, something like that. You don't say disintelligible, but that would be a negative, you know. Right. 
Right, those types of things where certain morphemes, despite the fact that they are productive, that you can use them in a lot of different scenarios, cannot be used in certain scenarios. And, and first native language speakers recognize that right away. Like, um, But some morphemes just kind of become ubiquitous, like ness, goodness, uh, greatness, the, the, the ness morpheme. Like we know that it has a meaning, kind of, but can you define ness? No, but can you put it on lots of words? Sure. Um, and so morphemes are, while well, they're a base unit of meaning, and you kind of understand that there is meaning there, um, dependent morphemes, the ones that have to serve kind of a grammatical function, um, you, if you ask a native speaker to, 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 to define it, you're going to be like, uh, I don't know. Um, but you, you kind of understand as a native speaker that that is a thing that exists and, and in your, your mind, in your linguistic paths, path, neural pathways, you've 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 got a miss you know it's element. made a noun verb that's what i did uh, right so there's yeah there's different uh, different morphemes that can do all serve all those different functions and and then as you put them in different scenarios they're all of a sudden um they can change their phonology their, their sorry their phonetic representation so like impossible versus in uh, the I-N at the beginning of words can become M if it's before a P. So possible becomes impossible, even though it would be impossible, but because the phonetic uh, environment makes it change the actual pho the phon uh, phonetics of it. Anyway, morphemes, interesting uh, subject. Once again, I don't believe the layman's going to be all that interested in morphemes, just other than realizing that's something that, that linguistic stutter, uh, linguistic students or um do study, and that is an element of linguistics. Uh, let's move on to synth. Sorry, what, Cameron? Accelerate. Accelerate actually means to speed up or slow down, but um, we, but because that is too hard for us, we said acceleration and deacceleration, even though accelerate means the same. Sure, and th and that, that 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 kind of plays off a little bit with uh, psycholinguistics as well. But yeah, that that is true. Sometimes we take what is grammatically um, a particular word and we add another morpheme, even though it doesn't actually need to be there. Um, and but yeah, that's that's all um, something we could discuss here later in the podcast if we have time. Um, but yeah, morphemes are interesting. Something you can discuss and think about. Uh, we could uh, visit again later. Syntax. This is one that linguistics love. Uh, linguists love syntax to kind of an unhealthy level. Generally, it's a bit perverse, if you ask me. It's, um, <laughs> it, I think it's mostly because it's the most formalized, most ma most mathematical. Um, at least there's been a lot of efforts to make syntax very formal. Uh, there have been lots of different syntactic systems proposed. Now, for the layman, syntax is, you're talking word order. Um, in in the, the field of linguistics, you're specifically talking about how words go together to make a phrase or a sentence or an idea. Um, and so, and how we, in uh, that language, the, the speaker, how does the speaker assemble a particular sentence? And how does the listener or the reader then how can they pull the meaning, the correct meaning out of that the group of words? What, you know, what 
organization are they putting on those words in order to extract the correct meaning? And so that's syntax, is this word order and this, this formalization of uh, how words relate to each other in order to, to percolate up some meaning to the, the reader or listener. So that's, like I said, there's lots of formula, formalized versions, but at the layman level, you can imagine in your English class and either in high school that you were sitting there diagramming a sentence and this is a noun and this is a verb and this is an object, you know, the, the man ran, or that's not, that's a determiner, a noun and a verb. Uh, he sent it, for example, uh, that's a, um, very simple sentence and you diagram that type of thing and now you know okay this is my noun this is my verb and this is my object which is also a noun right um but you can imagine obviously in these very complicated sentences and and you add in all these different parts of speech and all of these different embedded phrases it's like well how do how does everyone that learns a language natively figure out all these rules and how I have this embedded phrase here and this embedded phrase here and this relates to this uh, across a word that seems like it would probably block but it doesn't block anyone um, and so linguists love the math of this and trying to figure out okay does this work and does this not work and um, and, and so there have been lots of theories syntactic theories um, the one I learned in uh, school was minimalism I believe uh, I think that was forwarded first by Noam Chomsky, um, and that's once again just you can imagine just a, pars a a tree above your sentence, and you just build a lot of little branches up, and you label each one as a phrase or a noun phrase or a verb phrase, and you make them all connect together so that you're happy. Um, I'm a little bit less in the syntax. Um, realm i'm i'm not uh, particularly in love with those ideas i think it's a little bit more fluid than these rigid rules would have you believe um but syntax is something that we argue about in english it's something that's very important for lawyers um so that's something that, uh, that more lawyers could probably uh, take a, some lessons from linguists to be able to better parse uh, legalese and be able to find issues with legal texts and say, oh, this, this, according to a native speaker, could be interpreted both of these ways. And therefore, you know, the, the, my client can't be held liable for su such and such because this, uh, the syntax is, is you know, ambiguous. Um, so that's, you know, a, a, a potential useful, not for, uh, not for a layman per se, but for a, a lawyer. As far as layman goes, um, we don't, most people just don't care. Uh, syntax is just, uh, if you can put the sentence together in a way that's meaningful for people, uh, then you've done your job, syntactically speaking. Um, now, there are interesting parts of, of uh, syntax. I'll give you one, and this one is a garden path sentence. So garden path sentences are, are sentences where the native language speaker can start Parsing. So this shows you that you're as as you're listening. I'm gonna I'm gonna say the sentence in just a, a second. I'm gonna say the sentence. You're, you're gonna be listening to it. Uh, you're gonna your mind's gonna be putting it together in a particular way, re reading your understanding for the next word. And all of a sudden, I'm gonna say a word that's just gonna crash. You're gonna it's gonna break down your understanding, and you're not the sentence isn't gonna make any sense for a minute. Sometimes you can go back put it together and be like, oh, okay, I understand what he meant. And sometimes garden path sentences, you can't. 
even though it's a grammatical sentence, you can diagram it out in your, you know, your high school. It's like, okay, the parts are all here, but if I say it, it doesn't make any sense. So the, the, here's the sentence that, that often used. It's uh, the horse raced past the barn fell. Do you understand that one, Cameron? Uh, the horse fell after he raced past the barn. Right. Correct. Um, so that one is recoverable, right? There are um, ones that are less recoverable, but as you're I mean, seeing the horse it, race it past hurts. the barn, yeah. you... Sorry, go ahead, Cameron. Yeah. No, no, I, it, it hurts to say it like that. Like, it, like, I understand. Like, my head's like, no, that's not right. But it's right. Like, everything you said, like you said, it works, but in my head, it's like, no, that's that's not right. Right, exactly. Um, another one, so this was um, the old man, the boat. The old man and boat? The, that? the old man, the boat. Right, that one kind of blows your mind. You take a minute, if you take enough minutes, <laughs> you can probably put it together, right? But Like, the, he was steering the boat, he manned the boat? Do you, like the old, as in the old people, like as in the old, yeah. like not the young, but the old man, as in like, you know, to man a boat, to, you know, be the one that's working on it. Yeah. The old man, the boat. Right. But that garden path sentence, it just blows you out of the water because you're like, that ah, doesn't compute. That's not what I was thinking at, at all. Um, yeah, exactly. So and these happen in the other languages and they're interesting, but they just tell they show you that your mind is primed for specific syntactic structures and particular word meanings. And when you get words that you think have a particular meaning and you build that structure on top of it and all of a sudden the words underlyingly don't have that meaning, you think, oh, what do I do? <laughs> and all of a sudden your, your understanding of the sentence just breaks down. So syntactic, interesting, um, you know. A little party trick, yeah. I guess. So, a little party trick, and also I, I, I could understand some of these maybe these syntactic, syn, not syntactic, syntactic, syntastic. Yeah, that's the one. Oh my god, I'm not speaking well right now. <laughs> um, these things that we're talking about errors. If you're trying to learn a new language, you could think or feel that everything you're doing is right to what how you learned it but it could like the way you, you phrased it would just hurt a native speaker sure right and that's that th that yeah that's different from garden possibility there's no question you're right there like there are certain way, things that a non-native lang uh, language speaker will say in, in their second language that while grammatically possible they're just not said people don't say it and so as soon as you say that you are you expose yourself. It's like, oh, okay, this this person learned this language, you know, not as a native, um, and that happens for sure. And so syntax is one of those things where you can put everything together correctly and still not put it together in a native way. So. Um, and then uh, the other thing about this, I think our layman listeners would really like to kind of well, at least food for thought for them, is this is one of the reasons why. Um, like speech recognition programs and things like that that we use frequently have struggles, you know, doing things in, in, the, in the digital world, like picking up, like you could start mid-sentence or something and somebody could understand it. 
but a computer would have a lot harder time understanding it because of syntax, correct? Uh, that's one of the things, and we can talk about that more. I have uh, computational stuff at the end here, but there, the, among other things, yes, um, and it doesn't. It's not formalized in exactly the same way that we talk about syntax as in like human syntax, but yes, computers do have kind of a syntactic representation that they're expecting, and if they don't, uh, if they can't fit their models, then yes, you can also create problems uh, for them, and their models are a little more rigid than our uh, native language speaking models, and therefore, yes, easier to break. Um, okay, so that's a good question. Um, let's move on to what well, I think the most layman uh, have day-to-day -day experience with and have arguments about and a lot of the fun of language and that comes in semantics and or pragmatics. So semantics are the is the meaning of languages, uh, a meaning of words, meaning of, of sentences. Uh, so sy syntax is the way we put it together in order to extract the meaning and semantics is that extraction of meaning. Like what is what is the meaning of a word or sentence or phrase? And that's what we have arguments about, right? That's what you argue about with your spouse. That's what you argue about with your siblings. Uh, I didn't say that. That's not what I meant. Um, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and no, right. that's that just what? learned. She's Oh, right. yeah. your wife is always right. That's correct. Yes. Well, yeah, for, exactly. for you. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so, semantics is what we argue about all the time. We argue about it in the courtroom. We argue about it in government. We argue about it on a personal day-to-day -day level. You argue about it with your boss. Uh, you know, all these questions of how, what is meaning? How do we formalize it? How do we make it? Um, so in, I work on computers. Uh, semantics are very tightly defined in in because you have to compile them they come going down to ones and zeros um, this is where you move more toward away from the scientific aspects of linguistics and more towards kind of the artsy stuff uh, trying to have rules but generally understand that semantics is is it's the black magic of, of language it's the um, uh, the un the uh, undiscovered country it's the uh, cutting edge it's uh, you know, we try to understand how languages have meaning, and that's, but that's a very difficult thing to put your finger on. Uh, but let's talk about a couple interesting uh, semantic or pragmatic. So pragmatics is, is the kind of day-to-day -day usage of meaning, the, the way we use it in the real world, the way we interact using semantics. Um, but let's talk about one thing that I always found really interesting, and this is kind of the formalization, the closest you can do to a formaliza formalization, I think, in semantics, and that's a semantic prime. Um, so in semantics, you're, you're dealing with definitions, right? Meaning, um, trying to trying to define a word. Well, how do you define a word? You have to use other words. Well, how do you define those words, right? It becomes this uh, infinitely recursive. You're going down the rabbit hole. You're just diving down that rabbit hole, trying to define this word and then this word and this or the word. If you've ever tried to, to define a word for like a three-year-old, you find yourself in this situation frequently. When they ask, what is... Uh, what does government mean? Trying to define salt. What was that, Cameron? They're trying to define salt or sour. Right. Okay. So, right. So, yeah. The, um, and that's what it comes down to. So, you, when you try to define a specific word, you're, then you're going to use other words. And uh, where, do, where does that, where do you get off the merry-go-round? Like, when, when can you all of a sudden say, well, that's as, that's as good as I can get? Um, and that's the idea of a semantic prime, is that there are specific words and or concepts that cannot be further reduced. It's like a prime number. 
it's uh, this is one of the base unit of uh, units of meaning and that is a semantic prime and I can define all words with these words uh, because they're the base units of meaning now sometimes I have to stack them and layer them um, in order to get um, the, the the meaning in question of the of a specific word and so maybe not the most efficient use but they are the base units of meaning everything can be reduced to to these primes uh, and and there's a list of them they're kept online um, if you want to dig in there but it is a very um, useful under uh, idea the idea that okay uh, meaning can be uh, boiled down to specific concepts and we build on those concepts um, and so you know there uh, for example and there's different categories so you can look this up on wikipedia it's also maintained i believe by a university i think it was originally australia so thank you australians i i could be wrong but that's my memory um uh, now it's a little bit more ubiquitous i believe it's kind of become more of a uh, effort across the linguistic field to understand that okay these are linguistic primes um but so there's substantive uh, uh linguistic primes that's i you someone people something thing or body relational um substantive so kind or part anyway i won't go through all of them but the idea that happen do move say words know want these are all semantic primes you can't break these ideas down any further um and therefore they are a prime word a prime meaning um i disagree about want about what want you could break down want would be a desire right but then you get the word desire is going to take you back up the chain and that's the problem right so they, they've spent some time it's yeah, difficult it's a complicated thing and i haven't sat down and really gone through these in a long time but um but yeah, the, the idea of a semantic prime is something that, yeah, it's interesting to think about and to study. It is a formalization of semantics in a way that um, is really useful. Another thing in the semantic realm that I think can be really useful to people is a tool called WordNet. Um, WordNet is a, it's called a lexical database. I, there's one for English maintained by Princeton, um, and there are... WordNets and other languages. I don't remember what the number of languages that they support at this point, but uh, and it's the idea that they have all of the related meanings of these words. So we, for each word, they group them into uh, what they call synsets. So essentially, this, um, the synonyms are all grouped together and mapped in a particular way, um, and it helps you kind of give a better picture of, of what words mean based on on their nearest neighbors, uh, based on analogy. This one's related to this and this and this and this, and therefore we know what it means because all these words are right next to it. Um, and so it's another way to kind of understand, okay, these have, um, these words are defined kind of by the, the way we structure the semantic web. It's the, uh, as words, build synonyms and groups of synonyms, the meaning becomes relative to those. Um, and so WordNet is something really interesting to look for. There's lots of interesting visualizations of WordNet where you can see word clouds and, and you know, uh, there are certain words that are the most representative of a particular category. So like if I say bird, 
well, what is a bird? What is the meaning of bird? And turns out that at least I, if I remember correctly, the, you know, at least in well, this might be specific to parts of the of the world, probably is, but like a sparrow is very representative to most English speakers, at least in the United States, of a bird, of the idea of a bird. Um, and anyway, so huh. lots of different. I have a finch. You you have a finch. That's what you thought of. Yes. Sparrow. Okay. I thought finch. All right. Right. Similar. Jeez. Similar. <laughs> Um, then I went to Monty Python. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, uh, one other thing to move on uh, before we move on from semantics, this is more in the pragmatics realm, and that's um, linguistic scripts. And that's the idea that we have specific ways that we use, uh, that we structure even above the semantic level. For example, you know exactly what's going to happen when you walk into a restaurant, right? They're going to say, you know, do you have a reservation? No. How many? You know, how, how many? Uh, two. Uh, is the you know at the bar or you know uh, in in, in the uh, at the table or whatever. So uh, there are particular semantic scripts, and then if they get broken, like you're expecting that, as soon as someone breaks a semantic script, instead of walking in and and the hostess. Uh, saying, you know, welcome, uh, you know, you have a reservation. They said, welcome, would you like to buy our newest car? Like, I, I don't know, what? Um, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you, know, you have to chuck everything out the window. You understood the words, but all of a sudden, because the semantic script is broken, you're kind of on, you're completely out of your element. You, you're, all of your senses kind of have to take a, do a double take and and uh, semantic or pragmatic scripts are are there to uh, help structure language so that you can it, it tunes your listening in a particular way you know to listen for specific questions that's what you're primed for um, you're listening for specific cues you you know to answer specific words uh, as soon as you break that all of that goes out the window and then if it's a loud restaurant all of a sudden you're saying what and they're saying what uh, because no one understands each other because the the script is gone and all of a sudden it's just a completely free for all as far as words and ideas are are concerned so um say next time I go to a restaurant I should randomly I Tell the hostess when she like says, welcome to blah, 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 booth, table, or bar, I say, purple tang is yuck for selling, and then just see what happens. Yeah, I guarantee she's uh, the hostess or host or whatever says, what? Excuse me? <laughs> right? Um, I, I think you should lead with that everywhere you go. <laughs> purple tang is yuck. <laughs> well, that would be breaking all the semantic scripts. Sorry. Oh, also, Tim, you missed Carl saying um, syntastic prime. What was it? Semantic prime. Semantic prime. And I wanted to say that if you were on, you would have said that was Optimus's brother. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, Optimus's boring brother that just sat around in the library all day. Uh, right. He, he was actually a, a transformer as well, but he would turn into an overhead projector. Uh, yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, by the way, I think all this stuff is great for our merch. We make some shirts with, you know, break semantic scripts 
and semantic primes that you know get get it at our merch store everyone uh right right um going like hot merch store will be coming maybe well <laughs> we'll see uh anyway the um the other thing i want to talk about uh semantic scripts before we move on is is this is also generally how you get humor um at least one of the ways you get humor and that is you know you have a particular script particular expectations semantically for what's going to be said or uh and then all of a sudden if they get broken boom potential for for humor right because all of a sudden if they get set, uh, broken in a particular way it's it can be viewed as humorous so uh you think of some of the the jokes that you know you know or your kids uh kids tell and you think okay well you know the knock knock jokes that's completely based on a semantic uh script right they're they're silly they're stupid but it, um if you break them that break the script in a particular way then boom it can be funny um and so that's the idea of, of once again a, a semantic script can be used and and or abused <laughs> per your needs so um, I actually heard a good one that describes this well. Um, I, I saw it, um, there was this kid who got, tells his dad he got sent to the principal's office again. Um, and he's like, well, what did you do this time? And he, he's, he disagreed with his teacher that I'm sorry and I apologize is, means the same thing. And so he tells the teacher, well, next time you're at a funeral, then I want you to say, I apologize for so-and-so's death versus <laughs> I'm sorry. There you go. <laughs> Ooh. There you go. Like right. it. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's, uh, um, yeah, but, and but, so we play all semantics. Yeah, <laughs> a little like the phrase I I apologize for so and so, and the apologize is crossed out, and I'm sorry is written in. There we go. So, um, once again, if you're trying to formalize the telling of jokes, you're probably not the kind of guy you want to have at a party. But um, if you want to understand better why jokes are funny, uh, then often you can look at the the script and figure out, okay, this is what was expected. This is what they did. This is the the way that they switched up the script and and you know can this be generalized um anyway uh, let's move on to a couple other ideas before we wrap up here these are more uh, so we've kind of moved up units right we've moved up from the base level of language which is the, you know, the phonetics to morphology the syntax the semantics and now we're going to go kind of at a uh, we're going to look at social linguistics so or sociolinguistics and this is the idea that uh, linguistics, language, the use of language, the science of language, it's influenced by society. And, I mean, you could literally now just say, duh. But um, the study of how society uh, influences language is very interesting, right? This is uh, studying how, um, you know, families and or communities or uh, nations or races specifically use language uh, in in a way um, and ch it changes for that community in a way based on uh, how that society uh, feels about particular topics or particular words or ideas and um, so sociolinguistics is that study of how uh, the science of language these words and ideas and meanings are influenced and directed by um, our, our 
our society. So a very uh, seminal science, sociolinguistic study uh, was done by, I think his name's William, William Labov. Um, and he uh, was studying how the uh, English, in English, um, in, I believe this was in New York, oh, I'm, I'm pretty certain it was in New York, uh, this is 80 years ago, uh, they were dropping the uh, R sounds at the end of certain words. And uh, he wanted to understand why and how and how is this because it was sometimes it was dropped and sometimes it was not dropped. And um, this, this sound was just disappearing um, in certain scenarios. And so he went to, to study it. And to do so, he wanted to look at how the society, different levels of society would, would treat that. And so he went to three different, I believe it was three different stores. Um, and they were all different socioeconomic levels of of the uh, you know, of society so you had a, a pretty poor store kind of a middle class store and a high-end store and he went in and he'd ask uh, you know some of the employees there one by why one just casually um he'd find something that was these are all in new york so they all had multiple floors and he'd find something uh that he uh, and he'd say okay where is this located and they'd have to respond you know the fourth floor and so he was listening for the R uh, in, in fourth and floor, I believe. And, and he'd record it. And, and that was his study was to come through and, and compile all this data from all these stores and uh, each ind individual he spoke to. And what he found was that um, at the lowest socioeconomic level, people were dropping the R all the time. It was just expected. You would not say floor. You'd say flow or whatever. Um, and up at the highest socioeconomic uh, level, you'd drop it occasionally, not frequently, but it would happen. Uh, and then in the middle, we found that uh, the middle class people never dropped it, never dropped that R. And uh, therefore, what he hypothesized and what, uh, is that the middle class people noticed that you know, people lower in the socioeconomic uh, uh, ladder dropped it. And people in the higher higher socioeconomic status didn't seem to. Therefore, they overcompensated by never dropping it because they wanted to be perceived to be uh, of higher socioeconomic status. Um, and, and the so higher that, socioeconomic status people just didn't care, and so they, they didn't drop care it. As much. They felt more comfortable with their status. Yeah. They realized that their 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 community didn't drop it as much, but if they did, no big deal. They they were more comfortable with who where they were because of their their place in society versus the people uh. in the middle class who were trying to define their place in society and therefore using language in a particular way to do so. Uh, that's one of the seminal uh, studies in, in sociolinguistics. One of the I, one of the early studies in, in sociolinguistics. Uh, Labov did a bunch of, of studies. Uh, in that area, and uh, that's one of the ones that we learned. You learn as a linguistic student. Um, I wonder if uh, if that kind of thing happens with other stuff too. You you notice sometimes people uh, correcting their grammar and maybe even overcorrecting, like I versus me, sure. and um, right. and things like putting the T back in often to often, you know. Right. Exactly. Or or whom? You know, if you use yeah, that's kind of. Uh, become un, largely unnecessary in English, but you will see it in some cases and, and probably people can perceive it for, to mean something uh, at the socio 
economic level and therefore sociolinguistically it, it gets uh, affected. So Ooh, one more processes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I hate <Sure>. that one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And these they're they are they're influenced by and it's obviously not just uh, at the phonetic level or the word level. It's also um, at the you know at the more syntactic level how you put sentences together often determined by your, your community. So, um, yeah, there is a, it's a whole field and it's really interesting. We're going to move on to really briefly psycholinguistics, psycholinguistics, um, not that having to do with crazy, <laughs> right? We're not talking about crazy people and the way that they speak. We're talking about, um, <laughs> psychology, the uh, psychology, uh, the way that it influences language, obviously the language of the brain, essentially. And so that's studied in a lot of different ways. And we don't really have the time to touch on all of them. I just wanted to touch on uh, a couple, well, at least one a really interesting thing I remember learning from my, my uh, psycholinguistics class, and that's um, reading. And, and reading is... Uh, uh, one of the many, well, obviously the mind influences everything about language, but um, in language, uh, you in reading, your mind is, uh, by the time you're an adult level, you're not really breaking almost any words down. You're not looking at um, specific letters when you read. You're not. You're looking at the shape of the word. Uh, you're looking at the shape of the word, and it's really more pattern recognition than phonetics at that point um every once in a while when you run across a word that looks weird um you'll take a second and be like oh, and then maybe you have to sound it out and that's names usually um those types of things where you have to stop uh and and they can tell this in a couple different ways um one way um different fonts actually determine uh how fast you read oh really huh. yeah so the reading speed uh, can can be influenced largely by a font, and that tells you, oh, well, that's because my pattern recognition here is not as finely tuned, and therefore I'm actually having to look specifically at the letters in the word, which is going to slow me down, versus just I'm glazing over this Times New Roman font because I've read mm -hmm. this, these types of words a million times. Um, or you know, Arial or whatever it is. So the font matters. If you want to be, someone to be able to read it quickly, then you got to do it in a very familiar font. If you really want it to stand out and have people have to stare at it for a while, that's when you want to uh, put it in a different font. Um, <laughs> so that's uh, something that can be useful to understand. Uh, another thing, and that you've probably seen this before, but it's interesting, is that idea that when that you've seen, um, if you mix up the letters in a word. Flop them around. So say all the right letters, but switch some uh, letters around in a word and write a sentence like that. Write a paragraph like that. You find that you can read it almost like nothing's changed. Right, Tim, mm. you've done this before? Yes, yeah. Right. And that's, once again, just the idea that your mind is abstracted away from the letters. Um, it's not... Uh, relying on that information anymore. It's relying on the shape of the word. And if the shape identifies, uh, you know, is close enough to the model uh, that you have for that word, you're good to go. No problems, move along. Um, and so that's, uh, that's once again, helps you um, 
understand how the mind works with uh, with and that's with reading and so that that's true with uh, these types of things are true with all of, you know all of these aspects of linguistics your mind is primed in particular ways uh, acquires language and expects language in a particular way and so if you mess with your mind in specific ways you're going to get uh different linguistic outcomes mm. um so it's a very very interesting part of linguistics uh i really enjoyed my psycholinguistics class and i think uh, if you want to uh, read up on um what m uh, m r what are they uh brain scans essentially um and how you know we can we can study the the way the blood moves in your brain and how the, and and kind of understand linguistics from that point of view as well um that's uh, these are all very interesting topics but uh beyond the scope of this basics podcast uh two more and then i'm going to wrap up here um before we wrap up i do want to apologize to the listeners that have now made it through all the way to here and have been thinking to themselves the whole time i thought you promised us a uh podcast about uh units of measurement and <laughs> so i did uh however uh we are not fully uh, with you know these podcasts are just a grade a a one you know these are high quality uh, podcasts and so we can't just throw anything into into onto our airwaves here um, so we are preparing that podcast for you and you just wait it's going to be really good so come mm-hmm. back um, right Tim that's right back for more uh, okay last uh, last few things so Tim uh, You've got one minute to tell us uh, what about second language acquisition of a language um, and how uh, your students acquire a second language. 60 seconds, go. Okay. Um, the <laughs> so uh, slowly, and, um, <laughs> the, and I, I think everyone should be patient with themselves if you're learning it in a school setting or in, a, in, in any non-immersion setting. Um, the the way that most people approach it and that we're kind of constrained to approach it in such a way is to uh, uh, do use lots of um, repetition to try to commit stuff to memory, uh, memory tricks and that kind of thing, um, w- which is good and great, but it doesn't uh, directly lead to fluency. It can build a nice foundation for when you have a chance later on to um, get yourself in an immersive situation. But um, most of the time, you, you can do, you know, conversation practice, listening practice, vocabulary practice, uh, grammar drills, and so forth. And you can actually get pretty far with that. Um, uh, but I, I'm, I think anyone would tell you that the best way to learn a language, if you have the option, is to immerse yourself in it and find yourself in authentic situations where you have to use it, and listen and speak. Um, right. I don't know. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah, yeah. And I think you said a couple of things there that from the so the basics of language, the, the science of language point of view, are important to understand when you're doing learning a second language or a fourth or fifth language. Um, repetition is your mind is uh, plastic, right? So you got to hammer it a couple times before it sticks. Uh, uh, I note that in this case, plastic the adjective, not plastic the noun. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on who we're talking about. <laughs> That's um, right. It speaks for itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, right, right. It, it means it can change, it can mold, it can, um, but it doesn't do so overnight, and therefore you need that repetition. Um, and 
as it goes without saying, we've now done an hour podcast on all the on some of the aspects, not all the aspects, but some of the aspects of language. There is a lot going on in languages, <laughs> uh, and so the idea that you're going to learn um, a language, uh, even from you know a hundred hours of, of you know of effort, is uh, hubris. Uh, yes. You, or or slick sales program. Right. Um, because there's just too much there's too much to learn. And especially if you're learning a language very different than your first language, mm-hmm. uh, because always now you're not the, the semantic scripts are different. The syntax is different. You know, everything is different. Um, and therefore, you need so much data. Your, your brain is, by and large, a calculator. And if it does not have data, if it does not have a lot, a lot of input, it, the output is going to be uh, either lacking or non-existent. Um, and therefore, the more, and that's what you get from immersion, right? You just get so much input, constant input, and it require, it gives you so much data to process, and your mind is good at that. Uh, especially younger, there is a critical period where learning languages is easier, but it can be done across uh, all age ranges. Uh, but you need time, you need immersion, you need constant data input, and you need all variety of language input. You can't just say, um, I'm going to learn it by uh, talking to someone. Well, great, but what about reading, right? Because that's an important part of language, and it teaches you things that you can't learn from just the spoken language. Um, and the sociolinguistic aspects of language, and the semantic aspects of language, and all these things you get, you need, and and uh, well, teachers like Tim do their best to put together a curriculum that will help students learn a lot. If you want to be anywhere near a, a fluent uh, level, you need that the whole picture. You need the whole scientific um, spectrum of of ling- linguistic input, and that can mostly uh, only be achieved not only by immersion. Immersion is incredibly important, but immersion with uh, with a specific locale generally in, in mind. So if I get Im- immersed in uh, Mexican Spanish. Um, I'm going to speak, I'm, I'm eventually going to speak Spanish pretty fluently. Now, if you pull me out and go stick me in Spain, can I still speak Spanish? Yeah, sure. Can I communicate? Sure, yeah. And are there still going to be some weird things that happen? Uh, I'd imagine so, right, Tim? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and Spain, probably a, an unfortunate example because their dialect is, is uh, let, let's say, Cuba. Because um, oh, <laughs> uh, the going from Mexican Spanish to Cuban Spanish would be a little... It's uh, harder, we'll say, to understand. Okay. Spanish okay. dialect is actually pretty clear, but uh, and of course you've got vocabulary differences, which you you would note in between sure. Spain and Mexican Spanish, of course. But yeah, absolutely, and 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 even going from uh, urban Mexico to rural Mexico, right. you, you get uh, differences. And, um, and that, that would even take us to the, uh, the L1 acquisition. Your, your first language acquisition also is is dependent on what you where you're immersed, right? Where you uh, so there's there are different levels, different uh, where you're you can be a native uh, English speaker, but if you grew up in a rural community, 
you, your vocabulary might be very different than someone that grew up in an urban community, uh, even if you live within 100 miles of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your immersion matters. It influences sociolinguistics and it influences psycholinguistics and it influences semantics. Uh, now, syntax, morphology, phonetics, that might all be kind of pretty well established in your community, your country, your, your state, whatever you live in. Uh, but all those other aspects can be very, in, very independent and very um, determined by uh, the, the specific community in which you live. So that's why we get all of these arguments uh, when you marry your spouse and she's from, you know, Maine and you're from California. It's going, you know, the, hopefully it's all just in for fun. But you argue about how you say soda. Is it pop or is it soda? Um, maybe that's a Midwestern thing. Anyway, um, incidentally, it's pop. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. coupon versus coupon um, all these uh, just kind of linguistic uh, just regional variances are, are because you're immersed in a particular community generally uh, last one is computational linguistics computational linguistics this is where if you want a job in linguistics this is uh, the biggest bang for your buck so if you've uh, listened to this with the idea that oh I'm going to be a linguistics student great um, or if you're currently a linguistic student or you're studying some language in high school or you just are interested in language well if you want to turn that into an amount of money um, then you're going to want to do computational linguistics and, and, that's and we know the linguistics geeks are out there both of you so keep listening. <laughs> That's right. We're talking to you. <laughs> um, computational linguistics is your natural language processing. So that's your speech language. Um, that, sorry, that's your, your speech, uh, text-to-speech. That's your speech recognition. That's your Google searches, your information retrieval. That's your indexing. Um, those are all kind of computer science related as well, but they have very much a language component that is uh, important and useful. And if you have that background and being able to formalize semantics and formalize syntax and you understand how those things work and how words are put together and how ideas are put together and how they're organized, uh, those can be useful in a, in a uh, computer science realm um, that uh, in a way that, and get you paid. So, um, if you want to understand better how information retrieval works, that's your, when you're doing a Google search. Um, you have to understand all of these parts of language, right? What are they? Are they looking at the word in the whole? Are they breaking it down to morphemes? Are they? Uh, if it's a phrase, are they looking at each word independently or together? If they're looking at them together, how did they parse them syntactically? If they didn't parse them syntactically, are they just doing it based on a sheer um, mathematical count of uh, particular co-occurrences of words? Um, or are they trying to understand a semantic meaning and then map that into these uh, sets of documents that they're trying to search? So these are all concepts that are formalized in computer science also, uh, but the marriage of these linguistic uh, scientific ideas and the comp- computational ideas are what you get in computational linguistics, and they are, as you can imagine, very marketable skills. So um, I recommend, uh, you know, doing some research if you want to dive down uh, you know a little uh, rabbit hole you can look into um, latent Dirichlet allocation or topic modeling uh, those are interesting concepts that are used in um, 
how you group. If you've searched on Google, you type a particular word in, you bring up some uh, a particular set of documents. Let's say I'm typing in um, Mike Trout. He's a baseball star here in, in uh, the United States. And now I'm going to uh, type in um, Cal Ripken. Well, Cal Ripken was 30 years ago, right? And not related to Mike Trout. But you might find that Google, as soon as you type CA, suggest, suggests Cal Ripken. And you think to yourself, what the crap is going on? How are they reading my mind? Well, this is how they're reading your mind. They've got these uh, co-occurrences of words, this idea that, okay, now that he's searched Mike Trout, it's 30 seconds later, and he's typing something that starts with CA. Instead of just coming up, bringing up the most common words to start with CA, let's assume that he's searching something similar, uh, and therefore this group of words that co-occur, uh, CA, maybe even people that co-occur at, at that level. You know, th these are all different ways that they can structure this uh, this data, and um, and then they suggest those words based on those uh, those assumptions. Um, so those are some of the ways. Sometimes when you're searching things online, you're thinking, how are they reading my mind? Uh, ask yourself what the last thing that you did was on and. Uh, those are often used to input into these models and linguistically or not, or just mathematically used to inform how they uh, move and to suggest what you might say or what you might think. Right, Tim? Huzzah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Tim, I did the linguistics uh, basics of language podcast. Uh, you only joined us at the end. Would you like any final words on language? Or language? Um. Language, good. One? <laughs> yeah, two. No, I'll, I'll just say uh, kind of what you were you were talking about language acquisition. And I, I just thought I'd put out here as a Spanish teacher. Um, don't let um, don't let learning language intimidate you uh, here on Learn It From a Layman. We toss around a lot of impressive words and phrases because we're impressive people. That's right. <laughs> but but um, learning a language, when you get down to it, it doesn't require you don't need to be like super smart or or talented about learning a language. In fact, I think um, I've seen a lot of people learning language and the ability to learn a language does not really, at least from my experience, seem to correlate with your book smarts or how successful you are in school. So if you think, oh, I'd love to learn language, but I'm not the smart guy, um, you, you don't have to be. And um, so just uh, just pursue it. You know, there's lots of ways to practice it. Uh, travel if you can. Uh, rub elbows with people who speak that language and, and recruit them as uh, your informal uh, tutors and you know la language is amazing it's it's one of the things that really sets us apart from everything else and uh, and we all do it it's part of who you are so embrace it that's right yeah I do think it's important if if you've never learned a second language uh, do it because it gives you more uh, nuanced a, a fuller picture of of the human mind and how we interact together and um and so it's it's incredibly insightful 
even if you never become fully fluent in another language, the process of, of trying to become fluent uh, will give you a better picture. And obviously, if you can become fluent, more power to you. You're going to then understand you're going to have a whole new window into humanity. Um, and I think that's really useful. Um, one other thing, we're known here from Learn from Layman for a lot of hard science, uh, physics, calculus, quantum physics podcasts. Language is not generally viewed that way, but as I started the podcast, so I will end the podcast, uh, it, there are aspects of language that are very much hard science. So if that's what you're interested in, if you're interested in math and science and language doesn't really seem to you to be that kind of a thing, well, then you're not looking at the whole picture here. There are as uh, absolutely aspects of language that are artsy, art-based, but there are unquestionably ways that you can mathematically understand language. There are statistical models that help you understand language that can help predict lots of things. That's why computational linguistics has gotten so much better, such uh, exponentially better in the last you know, two decades is because we have these ideas of, okay, we can actually model language in a way that's meaningful um, using numbers. And so uh, if you are the, phys uh, the physics major out there, if you're the, the math major, uh, then look at language from that point of view because it is there's a large point of view a large part of language that is that can be described and understood that way and if you're the arts uh, part of language great that's there's unquestionably be a lot of art in language but don't don't leave the mathematics aspects of it behind they can help you understand um, language also uh, in a way that uh, just trying to uh, look at uh, like a Picasso um, it won't give you the full understanding. So uh, anyway, uh, thank you for listening to our podcast. Uh, grab your friends, let them listen as well. Uh, then make them listen to the last 52 episodes or whatever it is. And, and then kind of join us back again next time, probably for units of measurement. But you'll have to wait and see because who knows? Uh, also, eventually, another history podcast, though no one cares. Oh, whatever. It's the, uh, exactly, that's what they're saying as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, until then.